Okay, I'm Aaron Buckley, and... I'm Gideon Commands. And this is the Rail Railroad Study, Study Show. Show. Is it? Am I in the right room? <laughs> and we are continuing the story of Long Island Railroad history. We're up to part three. The year is... 1863, so we're in the middle of the Civil War. Recap from last time. So unable to serve Boston, the LIRR had to refocus their efforts on Long Island itself, but they weren't really well suited for that. Their main line went through the sparsely populated part of the island. They also built the Port Jefferson branch out to Syosset, the people of Flushing were kind of tired of waiting for the LIR to build a branch. So they formed their own railroad, which was the New York and Flushing, to build a line from Hunter's Point to Flushing. And that is part of the start of today's Port Washington branch. Hunter's Point is, of course, the geographic feature, which is now part of Long Island City, not the stop Hunter's Point Avenue, although it's, it's only a few blocks away. And then meanwhile, the LIR bricked up the Atlantic Avenue tunnel and rerouted the main line to Hunter's Point as well. And then finally in 1863, Oliver Charlock became president of the LIR. Now, the thing you have to understand about Charlock is that he was an incredibly petty and competitive <laughs> man. So I have a quote here. He came into office with lavish promises of overhauling the railroad, replacing tons of steel rails, providing elegant new passenger cars, of cooperating with every locality deserving and needing transportation, of reviving the Boston connection with lightning trains to Greenport and delightful steamboat voyages to New London, Newport, and Boston. He also proposed to meet all damage claims against the railroad and to make the interior of the island so financially tempting and so well serviced by the railroad that settlers would gladly come to make their homes there. But in actual practice, things were very different. During Charlock's term of office, farmers, villagers, and woodcutters of Suffolk, still smarting under the loss of property through fires caused by the railroad, asked for a meeting with the president to air their grievances and demand the promised payment from the road. According to Preston Rayner, he, Charlock, agreed to meet the people on Jockey Day. That day, more than 2,000 people arrived at Manor from all over the East End. Some brought their guns along. Oh, dear. The president failed to show up, but sent a representative. <laughs> This man met with some of the leading citizens uh, and finally signed an agreement that the railroad should pay half of the damages caused by it. <laughs> oh my God. I'm surprised he didn't get shot. Yeah. Can you imagine if that happened today? If people were so angry about the Long Island Railroad, they showed up with guns. <laughs> and while this was going on, additional competitors to the LIR started popping up left and right. So first one we're gonna talk about is the South Side Railroad of Long Island. If you remember the previous episode, there was that proposed South Shoreline. You're talking to me? Yeah. 
Oh, I thought you were talking about the people. I'm sorry. I'm staring at the map of the Long Island Railroad so I can stay on topic. Oh, okay. Yeah, is the South Shore Line the one that goes from, uh, well, it's the southernmost in from Jamaica? It goes from Jamaica out to Montauk via Babylon. So it's like dark green until Babylon and then it's turquoise out to Montauk. Yeah, with the Far Rockway branch and the Long Beach branch. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that, you know, so there was that in the previous episode, you may have remembered there was a proposed South Shore line, but that didn't really get off the ground because Civil War. Well, Civil War is over, baby. So <laughs> you know what that means. The South Side Railroad of Long Island's getting moving. So in 1866, they began construction and the line opened that same year from Jamaica to Rockville Center. By the next year, 67, it reached Babylon, and by July of 1868, they reached Islip, and then finally, Patrog in 1869. Now we get to talk about pettiness of Oliver <laughs> Charlie. Um, so they tried to get a junction with the LIR at Jamaica, right? And hopefully the idea is then they could have trackage rights, you know, down to the East River. But... Charlotte said no, because he wants to kill them off. <laughs> and he forces them to build their own station in Jamaica, which was pretty expensive. And they also have to spend even more money on building a line to the river. Which do they do? Yeah, so they build west to Fresh Pond. So I don't know if I was telling you, do you remember what I was telling you about the um, lower Montauk line that's like freight only? Yeah. Yeah, that's this. So they built to Fresh Pond Junction, which is where it meets the Bay Ridge branch, except back then there was no Bay Ridge branch. And then down to Bushwick Terminal, um, which is the intersection of Montrose and Bushwick, Bushwick Avenues in East Williamsburg. That opened on July 18th, 1868. Horse cars were used west of there to take passengers down Broadway to the ferry at South 8th Street in Williamsburg, um, which by the next year, those got replaced by steam dummies, which are those um, locomotives that are designed to look like streetcars so they don't spook horses. Horses are afraid of round shapes. Yes. Anyway, despite Charlock's efforts, the South Side was very successful. In 1868, they created the Far Rockaway Branch Railroad of Queens County to build a branch line from Valley Stream to the Rockaways. <gasps> hang on, hang on, hang on. I just, I just found out something. Emergency stop. The Bushwick Terminal is still there as a concrete plant. There's still tracks there. Yep. Oh, my God. There's not the, the street tracks down to the ferry anymore. But yeah, the, the Bushwick branch is still used by freight. But anyway, back to what we were talking about. So the, they built their line to the Rockaways because they want to serve these incredible beach hotels. At this quote, so the owners of hotels near the proposed route were eager for its faster facilities. Mr. Wynn of the Alhambra Hotel in Far Rockaway, anticipating that the line would pass his doors, painted and hung a large railroad hotel sign. <laughs> this was too much for Benjamin Mott, his rival in another part of town, who quickly offered the railroad seven acres of land and a station if the railroad would change its route. Oh the my railroad God. agreed, 
but Mr. Ma in turn was defeated in his aims when two years later, a series of winter storms widened the beach area by almost half a mile, leaving his railroad station inland. So line open as far as Beach 30th Street in 1869 and by 1871 it reached Hamill. So this is the entirety of the modern day LIR Far Rockaway branch, but then also down what's now the A train in the Rockaways. In 1870, so one year later, Charlotte decides to compete and build his own Far Rockaway branch, <laughs> uh, which branched off the, the main line at Rockaway Junction and ran south to Far Rockaway. So, okay, you know how east of Jamaica, there's two branches between the main line and the south sideline? Yeah. So the the western one was the one that the south side built, and then the eastern one was part of the original mainline branch to Far Rockaway. I see. Yeah. So and the, that continued it... south of the south side line um, originally, and it was it it just crossed. It, so it wasn't a junction. But no, it is a junction. Yeah. At Valley Stream. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at this. Railroad archaeology. <laughs> what it looks like now. So is it like uh, over? Yeah, it's, in it's entirely great sec separated and like elevated on um, embankments and viaduct. But back then it was obviously not. I find where the, uh, the second line is. St. Albans. Yeah, so one of them goes via St. Albans and the other one goes via Laurelton and Locust Manor. Ah, I see. That's interesting, though, because it looks like the line at, uh, well, it's not really truly Valley Stream. It seems like at Laurelton, the line, not Valley Stream. I don't know why the map says that, though. That's interesting. Because there's a thing called scarology uh, in abandoned railroad studies. And it's basically where you can see the land deform to where there used to be right-of-way. Mm. And the eastern branch looks like it crossed at Laurelton and kept yeah, going. It did. That's what I, I'm saying. Oh, okay. I thought it crossed at Valley Stream. No, no, across at Laurelton. That's called Springfield Junction. Did it go to uh, where JFK is now? No, it went down to Far Rockaway. Okay. Yeah. When I did mean, they rip up? Uh, later. Not in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so. And why is there a road called Hungry Harbor Road in North Woodmere? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So, in 1870, the South Shore took over the Hempstead and Rockaway Railroad, which had just completed their line from Valley Stream to Hempstead. But this should not be confused with the current West Hempstead branch. It was a completely different route. What? Yeah. Um, it's... I was looking at the map and just like, oh, I see. That makes sense. <laughs> No, no, no. This, this is a completely different route that was like entirely abandoned later on. But the railroad that built it was another failed competitor, Long Island Railroad. They wanted to build a line from Bay Ridge in Brooklyn all the way to, to Wontaw. And even though they were able to survey and do the grading for a lot of the route, nothing was built aside from the Valley Stream to Hempstead section. Where's Wontaw? Wontaw is a little bit, it's on the Babylon line. It's a little bit west of Babylon. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a weird way to get there. 
Yeah, I don't really know what they were thinking, but anyway, they they were clearly not very successful. In just three years, the South side had gone from just an idea on paper to the largest competitor to the LIR, and Charlock was pretty worried. There was even rumors that the South side was going to extend their line all the way to Sag Harbor, and town leaders began meeting to help fund the extension. Uh-oh. This is what gets Charlotte to insist that the LIR finally build their branch line to Sag Harbor first before the South side can get there. And being Oliver Charlotte, he decided to insist on making each of the villages that it ran through pay for their like portion of the line. The town of Riverhead being the previously planned and obvious point for this junction on the main line refused to contribute their share because they figured obviously uh-huh. the line's going to come to us like it doesn't matter if we don't pay. Like, we pay for it or not. <laughs> Smart yeah. thinking. Well, Charlick decided out of spite that instead the line would branch off the main line at Manor Station in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> the village of Quag also failed to raise enough money for their station. So Charlick insisted on having the station be built on the edge of town instead of in the, the middle of it. Just to be petty. inconvenient. Yeah, the line was completed in 1870, but it wasn't as successful as it would have been had it been built earlier when it was originally planned. Because now we're after the point where petroleum was discovered and the whaling industry, and therefore Sag Harbor was in steep decline. All right, let's see what else. Uh, first part of the Oyster Bay branch was built from Mideola to Glenhead, and that opened in 1864. Or no, to Glen Cove in 1864, my bad. And then it reached Glenhead in 1868, and finally Locust Valley in 1871. Then, okay, there's the Port Jefferson branch as well. So if you remember the previous episode, the right of the way for Port Jefferson branch had been surveyed and purchased all the way to Cold Spring Harbor. But, you know, because of iron shortages caused by civil war, nothing was built past Syosset. Okay, so now it's 1866, the civil war is over, but Charlotte is now in charge of the LIR. And he has a disagreement with the village of Cold Spring Harbor. So guess who's not getting a train station? Cold Spring Harbor. So even That's though awesome. the right-of-way is already, like, you know, surveyed and purchased out to Cold Spring Harbor, um, he decides to instead curve the line east to Huntington. And he refuses to build even a stop that's like, you know, south of Cold Spring Harbor on the, the line. It's just, no, they, they get nothing. This is a one cruel and wicked man. Yeah. So this opens on in January of 1868. Instead of going to Cold Spring, he's sending it over to, to Huntington. But Huntington also had a disagreement with Charlock. So the line didn't serve Huntington Village itself, but it was built a little bit further to the, the south. So it aligned with the, the village of Northport. This makes it inconvenient for people in Huntington. And then they extended it to Northport on April 25th. But while they were building out to Northport, Smithtown officials wanted the line to serve the prosperous village of Port Jefferson, where the shipbuilding industry is based. And Charlie didn't really want to build it there, but they did a lot of negotiating with him. 
And finally, <laughs> Charlie said, okay, if you finance the entire thing, I will allow you to extend the line to Port Jefferson. And so they did. They organized the Smithtown and Port Jefferson Railroad, and they extend the line from Northport to Port Jefferson. But they had a disagreement with Charlotte. And so, you know, instead of just extending from the end of the line in Northport, they built from a junction on the line a little bit to the south of Northport Village. And then that turned the Northport station into a small branch line. Yeah, ignoring the Northport branch, in 1873, the Port Jefferson branch as we know it today was completed. Now, meanwhile, further west, everything is really complicated and confusing. If you remember the previous episode, there was the New York and Flushing Railroad mm-hmm. was built from Hunter's Point to Flushing. But during the Civil War, the line suffered from deferred maintenance. And it's in pretty rough shape at this point. And Flushing residents were pretty unhappy. And so they decide to create another railroad to compete <laughs> with it. On February 24th, 1864, the Woodside and Flushing Railroad was incorporated. But the progress on completing their parallel line was slow. Charlick naturally had a stake in the Woodside and Flushing because, you know, it's competing with the competitor. And so the line was to run along that LIR main line from Hunter's Point to Woodside and then branch off just west of the New York and Flushing. That way it would have a slightly more direct route. But not much got built by 1867, at which point the LIR bought the New York and Flushing, specifically despite the South Side. And that's when Charlotte pulls out his funding from Woodside and Flushing, uh, because now they're a competitor to the line he owns. Residents of Flushing are pretty annoyed. They feel like they were duped into investing into the Woodside and Flushing so that the New York and Flushing would be forced to be sold to the Long Island Railroad. And so they decided they want payback and they just pour an insane amount of money into the Woodside and Flushing, hoping that it's going to like finish the line and become <laughs> a major rival. And with this money, the Woodside and Flushing reorganizes as the Flushing and Northside Railroad on April 3rd, 1868. And they elect Eliza B. Hinsdale as their president. Uh, The new charter grants them permission to build a right-of-way from Hunters Point to Roslyn via Flushing with a branch to College Point and Whitestone. So, okay, so now Charlie sees that the Woodside and Flushing is actually still breathing. breathing. (laughs) It's actually a legitimate threat. And the cost uh, to, like, put the maintenance in to rebuilding the New York and Flushing line was a lot more than he expected. So he, he just sells them, the New York and Flushing. He just sells it to the Flushing and Northside. The Flushing and Northside, now in ownership of the Woodside and Flushing, they decide that they're going to build the Woodside and Flushing right away between Woodside and Hunter's Point, parallel to and right next to the Long Island Railroad's main line. <laughs> to this day, the Port Washington branch still uses these tracks. <laughs> that are just like the two tracks like at the northern part of the, the right-of-way. They also decided to make the Whitestone branch as a high priority 
but they didn't really care so much about the main line between Woodside and Flushing. You know, that's a low priority for them. So they took their time at building it because they already got their main line that's already built the, the New York and Flushing line. So they're just going to put their resources into fixing that up. That's um, not the seven, is it? No, it's the Port Washington branch. Okay. Neither of these are the seven. That's like another 50 years later. 1869, right before they opened the new right-of-way to Honors Point and the Whitestone branch, the Flushing and Northside was bought by Conrad Poppenhusen. Woo! We did it. We get to talk about him. So Conrad-based Poppenhusen is just a phenomenal man. So I'm going to tell you a bit about the story of Conrad Poppenhusen. So he was a rubber baron from Hamburg, Germany. He got his start in the whalebone processing industry. And when he moved to the States in 1843, he opened up a whalebone processing plant in Brooklyn. In 1852, he received a license from Charles Goodyear to produce rubber. That's the guy who, he was the first white guy to figure out how to organize <laughs> rubber. Was the Maya had figured that out back in the day, but the secret was lost to time until Charles Goodyear discovered it and patented it. So anyway, he relocated his company to a small village north of Flushing, and he built this village up with roads, housing, a church, and it became a real like company town named College Point. It was incorporated in 1870. But just before then, in 1868, he opened up the Poppenhusen Institute. So basically, he taught people, you know, various skills for free at Poppenhusen Institute. His thinking was that, you know, all these people, they're going to go to the Poppenhusen Institute, and they're going to learn skills, you know, then he could hire them to work for him and make use of those skills. They were open to anyone who wanted free lessons and anything. One of the things that they taught at the Poppenhusen Institute, English, because most of the people who were attending were, were German immigrants, much like Mr. Poppenhusen himself. But, you know, they did pretty well at the English class. And then once they learned English, they were like, now what? <laughs> so the Poppenhusen Institute started teaching them other languages just for fun, like French and Spanish and Russian. Um, they also had a free, the first free kindergarten in the United States at the Poppenhusen Institute. He's pretty based. Oh, also I wanted to mention that I go to a college that started out very similarly, as well as a vocational institute founded by a wealthy entrepreneur. I go to Pratt Institute, which was founded by Charles Pat, the petroleum mogul. That's not based. For Conrad Poppenhusen, I'd bring back whaling. <laughs> yeah, but then he made it big with rubber afterwards. He didn't need whaling. They outgrow our vices, I guess. Also, the Poppenhusen Institute is, to this day, still provides free and low-cost lessons and a variety of subjects for all who attend, whereas Pratt Institute has evolved into a four-year undergraduate art school, which costs a lot of money to attend, unfortunately. I found out something, actually. You can rent rooms in the Poppenhausen Institute. Like, to live there? Or? No, 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 like, like have events. Mm. And some of the programs that they still have today are group guitar lessons, group piano lessons, lectures and slide presentations, stress workshops, 
historic exhibits, public tours, alcohol anonymous meetings. Yeah, so they're still contributing to the community to this day. Yeah. Needless to say, when Poppenhusen, being the based man that he was, turned the, the New York and Flushing line into a successful venture after Charlock had failed at that, Charlock was pretty upset. And so in response, Charlotte created the Newtown and Flushing Railroad in 1871 as a subsidiary of LIR. It would be known as the White Line due to the color of its cars. It was built to the south of the existing Flushing Line and it would be a competitor to the North Side system. So in response in 1872, Poppen proposes building a small branch called the Flushing Village Railroad. It was never built but the fact that like it was proposed made it so that Charlock had to build a less direct route into Flushing for the white line. I was I was wondering, like, why did Flushing never get a branch? Did a railroad ever go to College Point? Yeah. What happened to it? Well, I mentioned <laughs> that is... before. The, the Whitestone branch went to, to College Point and Whitestone. And that had been proposed by the Woodside and Flushing. And then when it became the Flushing and Northside, that was one of their priorities was completing that line. I'm, I'm getting confused. Was, was it Poppenhusen who bought the line that went to Whitestone? Let me try to sum this up. Okay. So you had the New York and Flushing Railroad, right? Mm-hmm. Which went from Hunter's Point to Flushing. But that line was in poor shape. You know, it was deferred maintenance during the Civil War. So Flushing residents, they form a new railroad to compete with it called the Woodside of Flushing, which is going to be built to the north of it. And Charlock had a stake in that. Okay. Um, but then when the Southside Railroad was building their line west from Jamaica to the East River, Charlock didn't want them to serve Hunter's Point. I see. Yeah. So he bought the Flushing and Northside just so that he could own both of the right-of-ways into to Hunter's Point to prevent the South Side <laughs> from building to Hunter's Point and force them instead to, to go down to Bushwick Terminal. And then at that point, uh, he pulled out of the Woodside and Flushing because that was the competitor to the line that he now owned. So then the, the residents of Flushing, who had invested in the Woodside and Flushing, felt that this had all been a plot by Charlock, right? to get them to pour their money into this competitor so that then the New York and Flushing would be forced to, to be sold to, to Charlock. So they decided in retaliation to pour a ton of money into the Woodside and Flushing. So they do, and they reorganize it as the Flushing and Northside Railroad, which aims to build the Woodside and Flushing and a branch through College Point to Whitestone and extend the line all the way out to, to Roslyn from Flushing. Meanwhile, Charlotte realizes that it's a lot of work and money to fix up the New York and Flushing. Sorry, that's the one he owns. And, you know, the previous Woodside and Flushing branch, which he assumed would would be dead at this point, is now alive and kicking as the Flushing and Northside Railroad. Uh And it looks like they got some serious funding going, even though they haven't built yet. So he just sells the New York and Flushing to them. And so now in possession of the New York and Flushing, they decide to prioritize on building the portion of the Woodside and Flushing line from Hunter's Point to Woodside, which they build the right of way parallel to the Long Island Railroad main line, like right next to it. 
um, as well as the branch to College Point and Whitestone. And then Pop and Houston takes over and finishes those as well as restores the, the main line. Then Charlick is pretty angry. So he decides to build a branch of the Long Island Railroad directly south of the Flushing and Northside's Flushing line. And that is the white line. Then that same year, Pop and Husen then sells the old right of way along the Newtown Creek to Long Island City. Remember how I said that they they built the 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 new right of way from Hunters Point to Woodside? Yeah. So they sell the old one to the South Side Railroad, so the South Side Railroad can get their line into. Ooh, he's making everyone angry. Uh, Mostly, he's just making Charlotte angry. And that thus completes what we now know as the Lower Montauk Line. Meanwhile, in 1871, Charlick decides he's going to attempt to restore the Boston connection. And he builds a whole brand new wharf in Greenport. And some mailboats end up using it, but there's never any passenger services. Well, this is just a failure. <laughs> so amidst all of this mess, right, we get yet another entrepreneur who wants to build a railroad on Long Island. And this is Alexander T. Stewart. He was born in Belfast in 1803, and he moved to the U.S. and became very successful in the fashion industry. He never has children, and now he's in his 60s. So he's no heirs to his fortune because he doesn't have a wife and children. And he wants to do something meaningful with his life, right? Mm -hmm. So he decides he's going to build a model village based on the English Garden City movement. And that is going to be Garden City, Long Island. In 1869, he purchases a large tract of land in the, as of now, undeveloped Hempstead Plains. He feels that the current Long Island Railroad branch line to Hempstead is inadequate for his development. And he wants a new line straight through the middle of it, parallel to the main line. So he decides to approach Charlock. Charlock doesn't like this idea, right? You know, building the main line through undeveloped land was like a, a disaster for the Long Island Railroad. So he doesn't want to build another parallel line through undeveloped land. <laughs> and also, he's pretty annoyed that Stewart even suggested to, this to him. So he decides he's going to charge Stuart exorbitant rates to haul the building materials uh, on Long Island Railroad to his garden. Man, he is, he is so petty. Yeah. God. So you know what Stuart decides? He's got to build his own railroad. <laughs> and thus the Central Railroad of Long Island was born. You know, he wants access to the East River. So he decides to ask around to see which railroad will give him trackage rights. And our man... Conrad Poppinghusen pulls through in 1871, and he enters an agreement that he's going to allow construction of the Central's main line, branching off of the north side and flushing. This is, I was telling you, this was this is the abandoned main line. Okay. Um, you know, eventually they'll tear up the tracks between um, Flushing and Floral Park. So, yes, the line went from Flushing to Floral Park, where it crossed the Long Island Railroad main line, and it became today's Hempstead line. And then it ran straight through Garden City and just ran straight east until Bethpage Junction 
at the Royal Main Line. Anyway, line is completed on January 1st, 1873, and Stewart decides to throw in a small branch parallel to the Long Island Railroad branch to Hempstead Village. And now we have three stations in Hempstead all within three blocks of each other. The central line being the newest and the newest, the nicest, the most convenient of them absorbs most of the ridership from the other two. And that is today's Hempstead branch. But even still, right, the central line had cost a lot of money to build. The Flushing and Northside had, had, had invested a lot of it because they saw it as, you know, being a nice branch for their, their line. And so they're like, uh, well, we need to milk some more money out of it. So they extend the line all the way to Babylon by the end of the year. Um, and that's, the Hempstead Bridge? Yeah. So if you notice on Google Maps, the branch, it, it turns southeast. It goes down to Hempstead from Garden City. Yeah. There's tracks that continue to the east. Oh, it's because I'm looking at the Long Island Railroad map. Yeah, but if you look at Google the, Maps, there's free the tracks. Keep going. tracks. That continue east. I uh, see. Those tracks used to go all the way to Bethpage. They don't anymore, but they used to. And then where they met the Long Railroad main line, and then they went down south to Babylon. And those tracks are still used by Montauk line trains. They go from the main line to Montauk down through Babylon. You know, there was no um, junction built with either the Long Island Railroad's main line or the South Side line. It actually crossed the South Side line and went down to the, the waterfront in Babylon to connect with the ferries to Staten Island. I mean, to the ferries to Fire Island, excuse me, which no longer come from Babylon, but they did back then. Then in 1874, the Woodside branch fi was finally completed. So now at this point, we have three parallel lines between Long Island City and Flushing. Um, and in 1874, Papen buys the Central Railroad of Long Island, and he consolidates it into the North side. So now it's the Flushing, North Shore, and Central Railroad. So now we have three railroads on Long Island. The Long Island Railroad, the North Side, and the South Side. And we have fierce competition between them, all fighting for what could effectively be served by just one railroad. And so it was very difficult for them to, to make money. And the South Side is the first one to crack. Right? <sighs> September, they defaulted on their debts and they became a subsidiary of the North Shore. So now Poppenhusen controls all competitors along the river. But even still, he was having trouble turning a profit. But luckily for Poppenhusen, Oliver Charlick dies in 1875. So the next year, Poppenhusen purchases the Long Island Railroad and he consolidates all of the railroads together into the Long Island Railroad. Based. However, despite the consolidation, the Long Island Railroad had been so financially strained up to this point, and it was a sinking ship. Very quickly, have to like make some big changes. So first thing they do, they abandon the white line, and also the South Side's dummy service to the Williamsburg waterfront from Bushwick Terminal. They got rid of that too. By 
1878, the former Central Railroad was abandoned from Flushing to Creedmoor. Creedmoor is a psychiatric hospital I was telling you about. Yeah. Before. Um, so they just leave it as a branch line to Creedmoor from the main line, and they make everything east of there a branch of the, the main line, and that's the Hempstead branch we have today. The two Jamaica stations were merged into one. Okay, so this is Aaron in post. I have a correction to make. Despite what my initial resources had told me, I've since done further research and have confirmed that the Long Island Railroad actually at this point did not consolidate the two Jamaica stations into one, but kept the South Side and Main Line separate at Jamaica. However, they did move the South Side's Jamaica station across Beaver Street so that it would be within one block of the main lines to make a station. They still remained separate stations and there was no junction built between the tracks at Jamaica. The three separate Long Island city terminals <laughs> um, for the Long Island Railroad, the north side and the south side, they're consolidated into the two Long Island City Terminal and Hunters Point Avenue stations that we have today. A curve is added between the Long Island Railroad Rockaway branch and the South Side Main Line at Springfield Junction. But all these changes are too little, too late. Just a year later, on October 5th, 1877, the LIR enters receivership for the second time. Again, not the last, but the second time. Pop and Husen gets booted out, and the banks who are now controlling Wyand Railroad since it's in receivership, they put Thomas R. Sharp in charge as the new president. And so that's the end of this chapter of LIRR history. So what happened to the branch into College Point and Whitestone? The Whitestone why is it not there? here Why is it not here today? That got abandoned in like the 1920s. Mm. You actually sent me a Facebook post with a picture of that line once last year it was a flush a photo of flushing bridge street station oh so the one with like the deli yeah and the, the, it was like a trolley car yeah that was that was the whitestone branch so speaking of the whitestone branch that line had been incorporated as the whitestone and westchester railroad i want to say oh dear because they had no. ambitions of building across the Long Island Sound to the Bronx, which was at that point part of Westchester County. Why, why when every any railroad tries to go to Westchester, it never works out? RIP New York, Westchester, and Boston. I should make that a uh, episode. I was going to say the only people who succeeded were the New Haven, but that's not true because this is the New York and Harlem. I mean, if you lived in Flushing, I'd probably get tired too if someone said they were going to build a railroad for the fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> I might be a little bit hesitant to put my money in. Also, <laughs> rest in peace, the white line. Rest in peace, the Woodside line. That would have been really close to where I live. Practically run through my house. My God. How far in minutes? Like, by walk? What, three, four? Yeah, something like that. I mean, you it would be further to a station because there, there weren't many stations built on it. You have the power to rebuild a railroad. Just get into wheel processing. <laughs> Yeah, and just build a just build a railroad straight through the Jackson Heights Historic District. They had competition. I'm sure the New York City Landmarks Co Preservation Commission would be very happy about that. 
Too bad. Change your name to Robert Moses. <laughs> yeah, that would have been interesting if they made it to the Bronx. That would have yeah. been uh, that would have been a game changer, I think. I'm curious how they planned on doing that. Like, if they were thinking like a cart float operation or a, a bridge tunnel or a tunnel. That's a long bridge. There are currently bridges across there, but they weren't built until the Whitestone Bridge was built in the 1930s and the Throg's Neck in um, the 1960s, both by Robert Moses. Uh, But those are big bridges. You know, they're big, massive suspension bridges. You know, there were, you know, there were no bridges of that scale in those days. Yeah. Um, You know, legend has it that during the Civil War, there dug a um, tunnel underneath the sound between Fort Totten in Bayside, Queens, and um, Fort Schuyler in the Bronx. So basically right underneath what's now the Rogs Neck Bridge. I can neither confirm nor deny the existence of this tunnel. I will tell you this, you know, is definitely attempted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's definitely, you know, tunnels going down under the sound from either end. What is not known is whether didn't finish them and these are just like dead ends or if they connect and go all the way under the, the sound but were like blocked off at some point. Mm, I didn't know there's still an army reserve base there yes. on uh, Fort Totten. Yeah, Fort Totten's interesting. There's also a very large uh, fire department complex there. It's a weird place. During the summer months, you can go to the... It's a park, and you can see the old battery of the fort. Mm. It's pretty cool. And then Fort Schuyler is the SUNY Maritime College now. It's the boat school. But yeah, if there is a tunnel between them, like you have to crawl through it, you know, you know, you're not fitting a train in it. You know, keep in mind, this is like a, you know, 1860s mine shaft dug under the Long Island Sound, if it exists. Um, I want to believe that it's real, but I don't know. Just like how I want to believe in um, steam engines and the Atlantic Tunnel. We will find out one day. I'm forced to say legally. <laughs> no law breaking whatsoever. None at all. Also, isn't it amazing just how petty Charlie was? Yeah, I'm kind of glad he died. <laughs> Can you imagine being married to someone like that? Let's uh, read his obituary. Charlie had a great capacity for rubbing people the wrong way. <laughs> his autocratic ways created trouble for Long Island. <laughs> And he affected the trackage we use today by expressing his dissatisfaction with the attitudes of local communities by routing lines and placing stations to punish them. (laughs) This is his official obituary? No. That's a historian writing about him in a Long Island Railroad book. Uh, Where is his obituary? No greater disaster has befallen the LAR than Charlotte's tenure? Man! Well, he did bring them into receivership for a second time. Henry O. Havemeyer, the president of the Long Island Railroad, had brought two lawsuits against him just prior to his death. <laughs> Can you imagine being that angry at your predecessor that you sue him while he's dying? <laughs> oh, yeah, I wanted to talk about because I was recently, and by recently I mean yesterday, reading about railway hotels. And mm-hmm. one of the ones that I came across was the Rockaway Beach Hotel. Let me read this, this description. The Rockaway Beach Hotel, also known as the Hotel Imperial, was a very large hotel built in Rockaway, Queens. 
during the late 1870s and early 1880s by the Rockaway Improvement Company. The hotel promoted as the biggest hotel in the world <laughs> ran along the Rockaway beachfront from the present day Beach 110th Street to Beach 116th Street. Six blocks long? Six blocks. What? <laughs> Thus That's locating ridiculous. it in the contemporary Rockaway Park neighborhood rather than Rockaway Beach <laughs> neighborhood, as the name implies. The hotel, the product of an age of superlatives, which also produced the Brooklyn Bridge, was 1,184 feet long. Oh my God. That's 361 meters for you metric users out there. And 250 <laughs> feet wide, which is 76 meters. Construction of the hotel was beset by labor difficulties and lack of capital. A railroad station opened in front of the hotel on August 26, 1880. But except for one wing, which was pressed into service for the summer of 1881, the hotel, although construction was completed, never actually opened for business. It what? was torn down for its lumber in 1889. Oh my, how about this? Who had the money for this? That's all, that's one of the worst ideas I ever heard. Can you imagine going to the hotel and finding out your room is six blocks away? <laughs> It's just, yes, yeah, sir, yes, sir, your, your room is three blocks to the left. <laughs> oh, imagine being a bellhop working there. Oh, probably use just a boat. <laughs> Aaron, I think we're going to hold off on railroad news tonight. Sure. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we have enough news to make an episode next week. Okay. <laughs>